Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 336 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hi, everybody. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are going to be speaking about personal finance for freelancers. Um, and I guess, I don't know, I, I, I feel the obligation to say we're just two guys who've been freelancing for a while. We are not accountants. We are not lawyers. We're not investment managers. But we'll at least try to tell you our experience, our stories, our thinking, our suggestions for you. Um, so if you make money, you can thank us. And if you lose money, ha, you can't sue us. That's the purpose of the disclaimer, <laughs> of course. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So, uh, uh, Eric, you want to you kick off uh, the discussion a bit? Sure. So this kind of arose from, I got a question through a Slack that I'm in that was, asking us on the show to maybe discuss um, investing for freelancers. And I think both of us would agree that that particular topic is probably one best suited for a guest or an expert, um, because the last thing that I want to be doing is trying to give out like advice about which mutual funds you should invest in. I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> as we were discussing this before the show, we do have a sense of like what it's like to manage your personal finances as a freelancer, obviously. And I think maybe if you're especially if you're working a salaried job and you know, contemplating going off on your own. The subject of personal finances is one that's kind of surrounded in mystery. And, um, you know, so I think there's just a lot of general uh, questions about like, well, if I go off on my own, what happens with this or that aspect of personal finances? So I was thinking, um, you, you know, that we could just kind of talk through what that looks like and maybe what the differences are between the way it might be if you're an employee and if you're running your own show. Um, so that sort of topically is where I figured we could go. Um, so maybe like a good place to start would be what's different if you've been salaried or if you've been working for someone else. Um, Adam, what do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, look, the, 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 the story that I heard when I started freelancing was if you earn X as a salaried employee, then you will earn 2X as a consultant, what's not to like, right? <laughs> you're, you're, <laughs> you're doubling your income. What that description neglected to mention was you're also going to have a whole bunch of expenses that you didn't encounter before. So whether it's going to be taxes, and there are a variety of ways that can play this out. Maybe we'll go into more specifics in a little bit. So whether it's on the tax front, whether it's on getting an accountant, dealing with a lawyer, whether it like there are all these things that suddenly you discover you have to pay that you never paid before and you're gonna have to spend time running your business and we're not gonna talk about the time here so much but that means basically you're not going to be working as many hours as you were before on 
what you do. So if you're a developer and you're working 40, 45 hours a week before as a developer, you're not going to be doing 40, 45 hours a week as a, de as a developer now as a consultant. Rather, you're probably going to be doing something like 30 and the rest of the time is or at least should be on your business. So you sort of have to make up for that difference. And there's also the risk. When you're an employee, you can't be fired as easily. There's more like, and so it's a steadier thing. And as a consultant, because they can get rid of you basically at the drop of a hat, so they're paying for that risk by paying you more. And then you may end up, you probably will end up with periods when you're not being paid at all. Oh, so you know what? So let's, let's even start there. <laughs> let's even start there. Before <laughs> you start freelancing, you should take a very good look at what happens if you don't get any clients for the next few months. Meaning you might well have to draw upon your savings. Meaning have savings. <laughs> um, and not everyone does this. In fact, I would guess that most people don't. And then they sort of get themselves into hot water when they discover, oh, wait, it takes time to build up a clientele, it takes time to get, even if the client, and we mentioned this in last week's show, but basically, even if you have fantastic clients, it's going to take a few months to get paid until that, you know, that actually hits your bank account. So the first thing to worry about is like, make sure you have some savings. And I'd say always try to have a cushion in the bank in case your client or clients don't pay you, um, which will happen at some point. And it's unpleasant, but it will happen. And... Uh, I mean, like I, I had the situation, this is not exactly the same, but we rented our apartment out when we went to the US for me to go to graduate school, we rented our apartment out and they didn't pay us. And going to the bank and having to say, we're not going to be able to pay the mortgage. How can we arrange this was really, really unpleasant. Hmm. Um, so I, I urge you all to make sure you have some savings so that you don't have to be in that sort of unpleasant situation. Yeah, that's... Um... You know, a good summary, I think, of when you had mentioned the 2x, I'm trying to think of, uh, I remember when I was first going off on my own encountering this rule of thumb in the US that was like, take your salary and divide it by a thousand to get your hourly rate, which I think if Jonathan were on the show, he would, you know, have a lot of fun with. But <laughs> the idea was, so if you were making $100,000 a year, that would roughly equate to billing $100 an hour, which is, I think, you know, more or less the same uh, way of reasoning about it that like that two X, um, yeah, 20th or 2000 hours in a year. Yeah. That seems about right. So, um, that was always a little, a mystery to me and a little opaque. And when I started to dig in, it was kind of like, well, you know, in the U S your employer is paying for the cost of healthcare, defraying your premiums and doing various other things that have a monetary value. But then there's also that non-monetary value of doing things like, um, making it so that you don't have gaps in your work or making it so that you don't have to worry about your, you know, pipeline of work coming in and then dealing with administrivia, like sending payroll taxes off to the government and all this stuff that you don't worry about when you are employed, but you have to worry about when you're on your own. So I think that, yeah, there's, um, the best way to start thinking about this is that your employer is number one, paying for a number of things that you will start paying for taxes uh, and certain expenses. And number two, doing a bunch of things that you're going to have to start worrying about doing. So that's the first thing to bear in mind coming out of the gate. And then, yeah, there's this idea of runway and delayed payments. I remember some of the most shocking things to me starting as a, a freelancer were how long, you know, yeah, we talked about this last week too, like how long you had to wait for those payments. They don't come in, you know, like clockwork five days after the pay period. And, um, you know, the, the idea that if a client just says, Hey, I don't need you this week, um, even in a long-term engagement, suddenly you have, um, 
unplanned paid time off, if you will. A uh, good example for me in, in the first year that I was freelancing, I was um, you know, working an extended period at a client and I didn't know this going in, but the client between Christmas and New Year's that week uh, just shut down. They didn't, no, nobody came into the building. It was a holiday. So therefore it was an unpaid holiday for me. So it can take some getting used to those, um, not only all the expenses and administrative stuff, but the variability in work. So that runway is important. And I would tack onto that by saying it's also important as you get a little data under your belt to smooth out, I guess, to take those weeks that you're off and searching for jobs into account when you're um, projecting your revenues. So if you're making $100 an hour and working 40 hours a week, that's 4K a week that you're making, but you're not actually making 4K a week because if you know the client tells you to go take a break every other month, um, you need to factor that in and you know reduce your income accordingly um, in, in terms of what you're projecting out. So I think the variability in pay and the variability in um, the regularity of your work are the two biggest things to get used to and to prepare for right out of the gate. So what are some of these things, let's discuss some of these things that you're going to have to start paying for on your own as a freelancer that your employer normally does. And, and here I'm going to try to point out also some of the U.S.-centric and how other countries do it, speaking as someone who lives in a non-U.S. country. <laughs> um, so the, the first thing, and Eric mentioned this before, is um, like on taxes, right? So the way it works if you're an employee is you receive your paycheck. So let's say you get $1,000. And um, like some proportion of that is withheld, like at least in most, most of the countries that I know about, like they withhold some part of the amount. And then you're responsible for either filing or making up for like it, it usually dovetails pretty closely with what you have to pay in many, many countries, by the way, not the U.S., you don't even have to file anything like all your taxes are taken care of. That's, that's the end. But the U.S., obviously, like you have to take care of it as well. So that's your income tax. But... If your employer is also paying a tax, there's that, that's the payroll tax, right? That's what it's called. Um, yeah, in the U.S., the payroll tax is uh, it. it um, do you want me to explain this part of it for the U.S. people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like what the employer pays. It's like the, their side of the income tax, as it were, their employee tax. Yeah, yeah, why don't you just explain it rather than me guess? So this is the point of a lot of confusion for people in the U.S., and I've explained it a bunch, which is why I can sort of rattle this off. In the US, there is social security tax and there's something called FICA and then there's Medicare tax. And these are different than your federal and state income taxes. Uh, it all gets lumped together. If you're a salaried employee, you just see that, you know, you got a thousand dollar paycheck, but you only get to keep, you know, 650 or whatever it comes out to when it's all said and done. But um, there is this portion of those taxes that are these uh, social security, FICA and uh, Medicare. And for some reason, you know, back whenever these bills were passed, the regulations were that you split that tax burden with your employer. So it comes out to about 15% of your income, um, these taxes, but your employer takes care of seven and a half percent of that. And so one of the biggest things that US freelancers run into when they go off on their own is this thing called self-employment tax. And if you start Googling it, it's hard to even figure out like how much that is. You'll see seven and a half, you'll see 15. And the reason is it depends on whether they're calling it the whole lump sum of what you pay or the marginal amount, that extra seven and a half percent that you're going to start paying when you go off on your own. And the reason you're having to do that is because the IRS in the US looks at you and says, hey, 
you're both an employer and an employee. So now you get to pay both sides of that. Um, and that's a shock to a lot of uh, people that go off on their own freelancing because you're paying an extra seven and a half percent of your earnings in um, a form of income tax. And that is uh, kind of rough, especially if you don't figure out that until your first income tax returns, that can be a really nasty surprise. So wait, so, okay. So, so you said a bunch of things here that are really useful. I just want to make sure I get it and maybe our listeners get it too. So first of all, the self-employment tax, which I've definitely heard of. In fact, the reason why I incorporated in Israel and have a limited liability company, like an actual incorporation, rather than being a freelancer is to avoid paying that. It's because yeah. otherwise, as a U.S. employee um, in Israel, as, I'm sorry, as a U.S. citizen in Israel, Israel has a tax treaty with the U.S. but does not cover Social Security. And so I would be responsible for paying 7.5% or maybe even 14%, 14, well, like of my Israeli income to the U.S. if I were a freelancer here. So I just incorporated, which is what all U.S. citizens do here. So you're saying that that, so the self-employment tax and Social Security are basically the same as the payroll tax, or the payroll tax includes things above and beyond that? The payroll tax is like the colloquial name for those taxes. Oh, I thought it was something totally different. Wow. This is this That's is That's why very there's so much confusion. It's also if you go Google it, you'll see that sometimes some places say the self-employment tax is seven and a half percent, others say it's fifteen percent. They're both right, I guess, depending on whether you so like if you're a freelancer, you're currently already paying seven and a half percent of that bucket of taxes, those payroll taxes. Like you're already paying half of the total burden. It's just that when you go on your own, the additional amount, that extra seven and a half percent is um, now going to fall to you. So that's why some people will say, well, the self-employment tax is seven and a half percent because that's the additional amount you see. Others will say, well, it's the whole 15 percent. Um, but th th the idea is you're going to see an, a seven and a half percent tax increase. Um, and that's if you don't like the way you can get around that in Israel. There are ways to get around it in the United States. Um, but it's kind of, you can file as an S corporation. And what that does is it, um, the income that you draw from an S corporation, um, if you're the like owner operator, which is going to apply to a freelancer, uh, you'll have to take part of your income out as salary. And then you are paying those payroll taxes, both as the individual collecting a salary from your business and as your business. But you can also take like half of your income out in what's known as distributions or um, uh, I can't I think of the term. Is like what dividend? you get with dividends. There you go. Um, and that is not subject to uh, those types of taxes at all. So if you earn dividends, you don't pay any Social Security, any FICA, any Medicare. So if you're you can basically reduce that um, extra tax amount by how you file. This is kind of advanced, though. If you're if you do this, there are other concerns like you have to uh, run payrolls, which isn't trivial to do. Like you have to figure that out. Probably you um, engage like we use uh, Gusto to do payrolls and that's not free. Um, and then it makes tax preparation more expensive. So there's trade offs. Um, I would say if you're collecting, you know, probably six figures in revenue as a freelancer, I would argue that it's worth it um, to do the S-Corp election, but you know, you've got to think about how much complexity you want in your life versus how much extra money. And so, um, okay, so, so we've got these taxes 
that you're now going to be paying as both both the employer and the employee. Um, I mean, I can tell you that in Israel we have, um, I mean, the income tax is all taken out of source. Um, so like, I give myself a paycheck every month and I give my wife a paycheck every month or I, I don't actually do it. My accountant takes care of it and the bookkeeper there takes care of it, tells us how much to pay. Um, and there is also a 5%, I guess, analogous. Um, we pay a 5% tax and that's for health insurance. And basically, then then we're covered, ha ha ha, Americans. Um, so basically, <laughs> wow, that so, sounds nice. <laughs> so so basically, I mean, it's a little more complex than that, but basically, yeah, you can. I mean, you pay, and it's the five percent is some combination of the equivalent of social security and health insurance. You can add to that if you want. And most of the people, sort of, you know, middle class, upper middle class, and 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 so forth, definitely do. Um, and then you can that money goes to one of I think it's four. Uh, HMOs, and you can just choose whichever one you want. And each of them has, you know, slight advantages, disadvantages, and so forth. So you have to pay, and there is an employer side to that as well. So you are personally paying 5%. I think the employer side is also like another 2 to 3%. It's sort of sad and shocking that I don't know this, but I don't. Um, and so basically, yeah, like you're always going to have to worry about sort of the employer side and the employee side. And if you have a good accountant or bookkeeper, they'll be able to explain this to you. And it doesn't mean you have to hire one to be with you every month, but it means you should probably get someone to sort of explain it to you and go over these things. And if you're like me, your eyes will sort of glaze over the first few times until you slowly but surely understand what they're talking about. And I mean, really slowly. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's like it's, it's, it's a whole it's a whole profession. So you've got those those things. Um, what else? Well, let's let's talk a little bit of health insurance. Um, you know, now that I've you know made fun of a few hundred million people in the U.S. and their health insurance situation. So so basically, you have to get. I mean, Eric, you have to buy your own health insurance. Am I right? Correct. And so in the U.S., this is you know borderline nightmarish the way. So um, one of the things that I've heard keeps a lot of people from going off on their own is simply the specter of paying out of pocket for health insurance. In the U.S., um, most likely if you're employed, uh, you have seen your premiums just skyrocketing over the last bunch of years. And when you complain about it, your HR administrator probably says something like, you should have seen how much they were going to go up before I negotiated with the insurance company. So you're used to these things going up. Um, and people think that it will break the bank if you're on your own. Uh, and I'm so, it's sort of mixed. I mean, it gets a lot more expensive if, if your employer isn't defraying that cost for you at all. But um, the amount, you know, the rule of thumb amount that you're going to bill or whatever should cover it. You know, just to, to throw some terms out there, I think the most recent um, or the last job I had, we were paying something like 300 a month for my wife and I um, together. And now being on our own, we're paying something like a thousand dollars a month um, for a retail health insurance plan. That's kind of a relatively minimal high deductible plan. So that's a lot. Um, but like 700, that incremental 700 a month, I wouldn't let it stop you from going off on your own. It's an unpleasant expense, but, uh, you, you know, uh, I, so I guess I'm splitting the difference here. It will shock you. There will be some sticker shock there, but it's not as if it's going to bankrupt you. Like if, if you really want to be on your own, you know, it's doable. But yeah, that's the U.S. Um, it, it's I would not argue a great by, situation. No, I mean, I, I, I would argue that like part of, for me, one of the nice things about working in the U.S. is people pay these very high rates. And part of the reason they pay these high rates is because they know that people have to cover these sorts of crazy expenses in terms of health insurance, among other things. Yep. Um, 
Uh, by the way, like, so when we were in the U.S. when I was in graduate school, we did have a whole nightmarish situation with health insurance. I mean, the story is I, I, I got to start my Ph.D. I called up Northwestern universities, like the graduate school. I guess it was the health office. I said, hi, I'm going to be a new graduate student. I have you know, I'm married. I have two children and uh, I'd like to sign up for health insurance for my family. And they said, OK, that'll be four thousand dollars a year for each of them. And I said, wait, that's twelve thousand dollars a year for my wife and kids. And they said, right. I said, my stipend is $15,000 a year. <laughs> and they said, okay. And like, like to, to them, this was like not interesting <laughs> at all. And I had a whole argument I remember with the Dean of Students, the Dean of the Graduate School, where he explicitly said to me that if this was an important thing, I probably should have gone to graduate school elsewhere. Um, that was a pleasant wow. conversation, I can assure you, yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in the end we ended up, cause, cause also like while I'm a US citizen, I hadn't lived in the US for a while. And so we ended up, uh, I tried to apply for health insurance and they all said, no, 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 you haven't been in the country for long enough. So we got this like insurance for Israelis traveling abroad um, and it turned out to be excellent insurance um, and we needed it. We had some like, health issues in the family, but um, it was expensive. We were paying, I think in the end, about $1,500 a month. Um, <laughs> no, notice that that's <laughs> like not, not exactly my, uh, my stipend. Uh, so that's when I was freelancing on the side. Don't tell my advisor. Well, it's too late, huh? Um, <laughs> But no, health insurance is something you should you should think about and consider and look into where you can get it because, I mean, Eric, you mentioned the HR director at a business is going and negotiating. Like part of what they do is they go and negotiate with insurance companies and they're getting a group plan for everyone at work. Um, and that's sort of the power of insurance is getting a group plan. Whereas um, if you're on your own, um, you're sort of at the mercy of whatever the insurance companies will sell to you. I know yep. there are group plans out there for freelancers and so forth look around. I mean, I am not the right person to tell you where to go, but um, look around and see, talk to people and find out if there's something appropriate for you that you can join up with because a group plan will always almost certainly be cheaper than uh, than doing on your own. Yeah, the best advice I can give for those of you based in the US is uh, just ask people what they do and look for like leads and suggestions. Um, there is the Affordable Care Act exchanges, so-called Obamacare. I think anybody listening to this that's in like a knowledge workspace freelancing, probably you're going to be making too much money to benefit from that, but maybe not. So I would, you know, word of mouth there, you know, for something that's this horrific and expense for so much of the population, people have like hacks and workarounds. Um, I, if you hear of any, let me know, because my wife and I just pay the full retail amount out of pocket. Wow. So I, I would be uh, interested in any advice on that front myself. One thing that we did look into, and, and this should speak to the state of this in the U.S. versus the rest of the world, is that if my wife and I, who are digital nomads, if we can get out of the country for six months or more, we qualify for something called global health insurance. So it's a U.S plan for expats that are uh, abroad and that costs something like 250 or $300 a month, no deductible, no catches, medical, dental, vision, like it's all covered. So your entire health is covered for like 250, 300 a month. So I've said before that if you have like chronic health problems and expensive health insurance and you're mobile, you should probably leave the US. Like that's something you should be considering because you could save an awful lot of money. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, just as, as an example, a number of years ago, I mean, my son is now 13, but uh, he was probably like three or four at the time. And he was in the hospital like for two nights or something. We, we had some like it was it turned out to be not a big deal. So I remember sort of showing off to my American friends and family that we did in the end for his 
two, three day stay in the hospital um, and, you know, including doctors and medicines and so forth, we did end up having to pay about one hundred and fifty dollars. And that was for the hotel room we got on the premises of the hotel of the hospital so that my <laughs> wife and I could sleep there. But like the actual hospital stay and the medicines and all that other stuff was completely free and covered by insurance. So. So, yeah, like <laughs> there, there are there are countries where they figure this out. Let's just put it that way. Um, but you as a freelancer will have to think about this and worry about this. And I'll tell you also, like from our family's um, like experience, going for a high deductible, deductible plan, um, like, you know, everyone, yeah, I, I wish everyone best of health, but realize that at some point you may end up with something and it'll cost you a lot. And um, yep. I'm not I'm not saying get all the insurance you can, but you got to balance you know, sort of reality with your finances against reality of people get sick even when they're young, even if it's rare. Yeah, I mean, we have a high deductible plan. It's not cripplingly high, like we could pay for it, but um, you know, knock on wood, we've both been pretty healthy. And what this has amounted to is the last three years, it, we might as well not have insurance except for like regular checkups, which are covered. Anything goes wrong, I'm, I'm paying for it out of pocket. So I almost mm-hmm. look at the world as if I don't have health insurance, which is weird in the US because nobody knows how much anything costs. Like I went to a doctor that wasn't in network, but I was traveling and I didn't have a lot of time. And he said, oh, it turns out we don't take your insurance. And I said, well, you know, okay, whatever. I'm not going to reschedule this. Like, what does this cost? And the and the woman in reception looked at me like I was nuts. Uh, she was like, well, what do you mean? I don't know. I was like, can you give me a ballpark? <laughs> it, it is right. a strange situation. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, I guess fin- um, personal finance-wise, it's definitely one of the bigger, weightier factors. Um but it's doable. I, you know, if you really want to be on your own, I wouldn't let you, I wouldn't let it stop you. And it's also significantly mitigated if you have a spouse that is employed and you can just go to that uh, spouse's insurance. Oh, right, right, right. I know a lot of people do that. I've forgotten about that. It's true. It's true. Um, okay. So what, let's see, what else? Well, there is, of course, uh, retirement stuff. So if you're working in an employer, they're probably putting money away into some sort of pension and I know that like there's something called an IRA. I know that there's like, so can, can you make sense of this for me as well in U.S. terms? Sure. Um, typically the way it works in the U.S., the, the pension is a dwindling factor. Maybe if you work for the government or certain like really um, long established kind of firms, they may have a pension for you, but more common, you're on your own for retirement savings. But the company provides this pre-tax investment vehicle called a 401k or um, Roth IRA, there are different ones, and I won't go into the nitty gritty of them, but basically it's different strategies that have different tax implications for saving. So the government at one point said, hey, uh, we wanna encourage people to save. So if you put away money, we won't tax that money. It'll be like that comes out of your income and it's just set aside. So the long and short of it is your company, if you live in the US, is providing these ready-made uh, discount heavy vehicles for you to save for your retirement. And they do a lot of things, you know, like schedule meetings to educate you about it. You can even like get on these commitment device type plans where like every time you get a raise, you tell the company to like, you know, bump your contribution to these things by a certain amount, et cetera. All of that goes away when you freelance, obviously. So you're going to need to be much more actively interested in and pursuing of uh, long-term savings. Does that square for other countries as well in your experience? So, I mean, I know that in Israel, I think now every employer is actually required 
to put money aside into a pension. That is to say, every every employee is required to sign up for a pension somewhere. And I remember having an employee a few years ago who actually was very knowledgeable about pension stuff. And he said, boy, the pension lobby really got their way this way because they're just ripping us off. And now they have guaranteed <laughs> like, you know, 10 million people to pay into their system. Um, so, I mean, we definitely, and there, there are different types of pensions you can get. So everyone has a pension of some sort and they have different sort of names for them and different types of plans. Uh, a popular one is like called manager's insurance, which is just like, it used to be for managers and then everyone could get it. And you have a few different types of things. I mean, I've spoken to, um, we have an insurance agent here, um, who knows about this stuff. And every time I ask him, he's basically like, well, like you can either go with a group plan, which is, I think like. I forget exactly what it's called even in Hebrew, let alone like how to translate into English. So you have like the group plan and you have the individual plan. And so each one, as you said, has its own implications for what things go up and what things go down. Um, and we've decided to sort of you know, put as much money as we can into that. Israel also has this wild idea. I think they call it in English a provident fund. And the idea is that from your salary, you put in two and a half percent your employer matches that with seven and a half percent and you put it away into the savings and it's a short-term investment or it is an investment. And after seven years, you can take it all out tax-free. It used to be known colloquially as a Subaru fund because every seven years you would take it out and like buy a Subaru. I don't, I haven't heard people <laughs> use that term like recently at all. Maybe it's because other cars are now more popular as well. And the idea is then like it's all tax-free. And so you get this extra sort of bonus salary that your employee is, employer is doing. There is a cap on that. But basically, we're doing that for me. We're doing that for my wife because it's sort of like, you know, why, why not? It's tax-free savings, sort of like you, what you were describing. Um, but I, I would say, look, I'm now 48 and we were late to the whole paying into the pension game. Like we only started seriously about a year ago and we started like not seriously maybe about five years ago. And granted, we've had pensions like, you know, I should say there's pension and there's retirement savings. These are separate things. So the this provident fund we've been paying into for years, the and we just keep rolling it over every seven years. The pension we've been paying into in various ways over the years, although not as much as we could have, but fine. And then we finally decided, okay, we also need to do retirement savings. And so we've been taking money each month and just putting it into savings, putting it into basically you know mutual funds that do uh, you know index funds. On the assumption that 20 years from now, it'll do well. Um, I mean, I, I don't mind mentioning them. Like I've been using uh, Betterment, which is this online, uh, basically basically index fund uh, um, investment arm or investment uh, site. And you transfer your money to them and they say, oh, we think if you're planning to retire in 20 years and you're this old and you know what's your risk, we'll put X amount into stocks and Y amount into bonds and we'll balance it out. And I say, bully for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and so this combination of things hopefully will be good, but I can't stress enough, save for retirement and save early. I know if you're like in your mid twenties listening to this and you're like, oh, but I'm freelancing and I don't have that much money. You might not have that much, put it away because whatever you put away now really and truly will be worth a lot more later on. And now my wife and I are sort of playing catch up on that and I think we'll be fine. But it's definitely a little nerve-wracking. This episode is sponsored by Paymo. You can check them out at paymoapp.com. And they are a terrific tool for tracking projects, keeping track of time, and sending out invoices. 
So if you're looking for a solution that's sort of an all-in-one solution that allows you to do all of those things, keep track of time, manage tasks, get paid as a freelancer, then check it out. If you're part of a larger team, they also have a team solution that allows you to manage projects across everybody, track all the time across everybody, and then send out the invoices the same way. It runs on Windows and Mac, and it works really, really great. You can get the task management view that's kind of like a Trello board. The time tracking is terrific, and you can look at uh, timesheet view. You can also just keep track of the time and see where everything went to. Um, there is a terrific uh, timesheet report, and you can also work on scheduling with your team and everything else. And then, like I said, you just send out invoices. Plus, they've got a terrific API so that if you need to integrate with other things like the Adobe Creative Suite or G Suite, which is uh, email and things like that, uh, you can do that too. And it also uses Zapier. So if you need to automate things through there, it's terrific. Just go check them out at paymoapp.com. So that reminds me, like the idea of compound interest here, um, I did the opposite. Like um, I learned a valuable lesson early on, which I'll speak to in a second here, and started contributing to retirement funds heavily, like from the time I had my first job at 23 or whatever I was. Um, and then for years, like maxing out my 401k contributions. And the thing that prompted me to do that was when I was in college, my dad, who um, had a background as a CPA and was the CFO of a firm at the time, he he got out a spreadsheet and showed me like how compound interest works. And he said, you know, you're 19, watch this. Here's what your retirement, you know, amount will be if you put just $50 per month into a retirement vehicle from now until the end of your career at 68 or whatever. And he did it and it came out and he's like, you will retire a multimillionaire for $50 a month if you start now. And I remember him showing me like how it differed if you started um, at different ages and far more important than the amount that you contribute is the age at which you start, which is really interesting. Um, and you know, it's not to say that you can't make it up if you start later, but if you can just, if you're in your twenties and you can just muster a little bit, like seriously, 50 bucks a month, which seems like not probably that significant, it really adds up if you do it now. So yeah, absolutely. If you're on your own, find a, a few dollars to do that. Um, I think in the US, let me see, there are there are plans. It's not as easy as the way your employer makes it, but you can do um, taxed advantage contributions as a freelancer too. That's not just something for the salaried employee. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I, I'm uh, from from what I understand. I mean, I'm still eligible uh, for uh, Social Security in the U.S. Um, especially now that I've opened up a U.S. company, I'll definitely mm. get like whatever minimum I'll, I'll need from that. But um, Social Security, I don't think it's going to go away, but from everything I understand, it's not sufficient for when you retire. You really want to have other stuff. So, yeah. and then I can tell you, like we had some people in our family who were very panicked about retirement savings when they reached retirement. And it's a very unpleasant situation for everyone involved. So you, I mean, look, and, and I'll also say, I love my work. I really, really love my work, but you know what? Do I really want to be working every day as much as I am now in another 20 years? Probably not. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so the only way to, to do that is to put money away now. And yeah, compound interest is incredibly powerful and just put it away. I mean, I'll tell you also, like when I was working, um, when I was working for HP, uh, they had this stock plan. Like basically they said, you know, you, you can take 10% of your income, you can put it into an IRA or you can put it into stock, like, and you can sort of have a sliding scale, 0% to this, 0% to that, or however you want. 
So I put it 100% to HP stock. That turned out to be an incredibly smart move on my part because we bought a house exactly when the stock was at its peak at the end of 1999 when we got married. <laughs> um, then the whole stock crash happened and the you know, dot-com implosion and so forth. The good news is then we got a house. The bad news is I have no, you know, I did get the retirement savings that they would have given me starting then, which would have been very smart. So basically, so, so, so basically, um, yeah, you should definitely, you know, definitely try to start early. Yeah. And that can be a tricky one. I just think probably like even, um, I was a dyed in the wool retirement saver and, uh, going off on my own, there were some bumpy times uh, in terms of continuing to do that, just not so much because of the money, but because it's sort of hard to figure out the right vehicle. So that's another one, you know, maybe if we can find a good guest to come on and talk about that, that would be a great topic. But like, listen to advice, you know, ask people who you know that are freelancing for advice, ask them what they do, um, because it isn't quite as obvious as it is for people in the salaried world. And there is valuable information out there. Like for instance, uh, I've also had occasion to use Betterment and and they do have some cool stuff there to like reduce the barriers to entry. So you don't need to like, you know, be some kind of mutual fund investment guru to know how to like set yourself up with a good portfolio mix. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we, we had someone come over even, we spoke to several, consultants and experts and all this stuff. And really, it's like I mentioned earlier with the tax stuff. It took me a good number of meetings to start to understand. It's a very complex world. At the end of the day, the decisions you're going to make are hopefully going to be very automated. Like that's what you want to do. Like every month, automatically take out money and put it into some sort of retirement savings, put it into some sort of savings investment, whatever you want to call it. Um, so that you don't have to think about it. But the thinking before you don't have to think about it can take some time. And, and that's a it's quite a, a lot to learn. Yeah. And all of this while you're also learning to run your own business, it can be a little overwhelming. So the more help you can get, the better. And you know what this reminds me of too is I guess the idea of commingling or like business versus personal finance. Uh, one thing that I would recommend, I think I actually, because I had moonlighted first. So I did this before leaving a salaried job and it, you know, was pretty valuable. Don't use your personal bank accounts as the way you get paid as a freelancer. Like if you're going to start to have money coming in, set up a business bank account, uh, keep your business finances separate from your personal ones and uh, pay yourself. I, I would strongly recommend going this route. I 100% concur. Um, actually, I'll even go beyond 100% there. Um, <laughs> so so basically, yeah, you you want to keep it separate. And, and the whole beauty of having a business, even if you're not incorporated, even if it's not like, you know, an S Corp or LTD or whatever your country company is, you know, works with, you want to have a separation between your personal finances and your business finances, even if there's no corporate veil that someone would have to pierce. It's easier for you to think about. It's easier for you to work with. It's easier to do the accounting. And do you really want your accountant necessarily going through your personal bank account and looking through all the expenses and income that you have saying, well, how did you, you know, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? It's just not a good idea. And the way I'll go beyond your recommendation is, um, so when I start off my company, so I incorporated and I opened a personal account in my bank and I opened a business account in my bank. Same bank, same branch, two different accounts. And I quickly realized, actually, it wasn't me who realized this. I hired a business manager to help me for about a half a year, eight months. And she said, I will not work with you unless you move your personal account, unless you move one of these accounts to a different bank. While, while this was completely illegal and or unethical, <laughs> 
Um, my bank in Israel basically saw these as both my accounts. And so if I like had overdraft in one, the other one, but the other one was in, you know, positive balance, they were totally fine with it. And they just oh. saw it as an extension of the same person. And it was very like it, it was a very bad like for, for me, for the business, for the relationship, it was just bad in general. And so now I have my business account in a totally different bank. I have my personal account in a totally different bank. And by the way, this also allows me sometimes, I haven't had to do this in a while, but sometimes I sort of play games where like I sort of, you know, because I'm writing myself a check, I guess I do a bank transfer from my company bank to me to pay my salary. And neither bank knows how the other is doing, right? So my personal bank doesn't need to know how my company is doing, how much I'm making. And my company bank doesn't need to know what's in my personal stuff. And I am so happy to have done this. It is the best. It's a little bit of overhead to keep track of, but it works very, very well and allows me to really keep a firm separation of things. I'll even go further than that. I have a personal credit card and a company credit card. And I use the company credit card to pay for business related things. And I show that credit card, uh, you know, those those receipts and everything to my bookkeeper and accountant. And they go through that. And my personal stuff is personal. And it allows me to say, yeah, these things that I'm buying, these are definitely for the business and to keep that separation going. Yeah. In the U.S., what you're mentioning, like I've, you know, for I, I'm, I have ownership stake in three businesses, so they all have their own separate stuff, which gets a little interesting at times just in terms of all the credit cards in my drawer. But um, for U.S., like tax deductions, business expenses, that type of thing, like uh, don't quote me on this 100 percent, but more or less anything that you buy with your business credit card is like an ipso facto business expense. It may be a stupid one, but it's a business expense versus if you're doing it all on the same credit card with the same bank accounts you're a lot more likely to be audited in certain ways by the IRS. Like, is this real, is this one really business or is it personal? Um, so it helps with the bookkeeping, the separations and taxes. Um, and then it also helps you do something which is a little bit more intermediate from the perspective of reasoning about your books. But um, one of the early mistakes I made and have since corrected is don't think about your business's finances as kind of a slush fund where <clears throat> you draw all the money out of it that you can that's available while the business can still pay its bills. So early on, I did that. It was just a different bank account. And, you know, if I had $10,000 in revenue for the business one month and I had spent $1,000, I'd just pull $9,000 out. Like, um, you know, I, I wasn't thinking. So if the next month I needed more in there, I would, you know, draw less money out, or maybe I'd even have to float some money back from the personal to cover the expenses. Um, what I would encourage you to do is try as soon as possible to get yourself to where you're paying uh, a stable salary to yourself and letting any surpluses kind of pool in the business for a while uh, and maybe paying yourself a bonus dividend later or something. And the reason for this is because it starts you thinking about the business as a separate entity and making decisions about the business that have more to do with like the long-term viability and, you know, maybe growing, bringing out other people, whatever you want to do versus if it's just a slush fund for you, it's all too easy not to really think of it as a business. And so the first step there is like the separation. And then there's this like thinking about this thing as an actual entity. Yeah, you may own it. But it doesn't exist just to be an ATM for you. I thoroughly agree. Look, I, I got into trouble sort of twice in the last few years in doing that. So the first time was basically I just let I was like, well, there's extra money in the business. I'll just give it to myself and we'll we'll work it out somehow at the end of the year. And excuse me, my accountant made it clear to me 
doing this, so at least under Israeli law, is considered the, to be the company giving the, the owner a loan. And that loan huh. needs to be paid back with interest to the company. And if that doesn't happen, then you have to pay all sorts of penalties and or taxes and so forth. And wow. so we, we basically like made a declaration to the tax authority saying, yeah, like I know I took this, you know, took this loan and I'm going to pay it all back now. Vump. And like it was a huge amount to pay off. And in fact, you know what? I think I had to get a loan from the bank and the bank knew that the government was cracking down these things and gave these very, very low interest loans to do that. So that actually worked out very well. But like and then my account basically said, never, ever do this again. Um, and I was like, OK, OK, I'm going to be a good boy. I won't. And part of the idea is then um, and, and then I like was still taking more salary than they said I should in my paycheck because I was like, well, I'm just rounding up. And they said, no, 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 this is the way it works. We tell you what you should pay yourself for a salary. You will take that salary. And then they said, if at the end of the year there's extra money, then you get it as a bonus or as a dividend. And we will figure out which is better for you tax wise. So like if you can hold off and not take this money right away and let it stay in the company account, this is to your benefit. Because then we don't treat it as income with income tax. We treat it as bonus or dividend, which are taxed differently. Um, mm. And so, like, I, I'm trying to be a good boy. I'm trying to do what my accountant says. And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have you know, a fair amount in there that we can just sort of get as a nice president at the end of the year for the business doing well. That's really interesting to me because, like, there are a lot of subtle differences between what you just described and how the U.S. works. Like, for instance, um, if you listener go off on your own and you form an LLC or something, this is what's known as a pass-through entity. So an LLC is a legal entity, but as far as taxes are concerned, the IRS doesn't care whether it's the check is made out to the LLC or you directly. Um, they still regard that as basically self-employment style income. If you start filing as a corporation, which is what my uh, businesses do, then you have this mix of paying yourself salary and distributions, neither one of which is like pass through income. And if you take a bunch of money out of one of those businesses, it's not a loan or anything like that. The government regards that as a distribution, which is perfectly legal. But where you run into trouble is the IRS requires you, if you're filing through an S-corp, to take quote, reasonable salary, meaning they're onto the idea that you might start an S-corp and pay yourself peanuts as a salary in order to um, have a whole bunch of income not subject to like social security tax. So they kind of reserve the right without giving you formal guidance to come after you and audit you for not paying yourself enough salary. So you have to do this like weird balance between picking a salary that's sustainable and makes sense for the business uh, but that isn't like injurious or, um, you know, like way too high and they wouldn't come after. It, it's a strange thing. So the guidance I've heard from uh, a couple of uh, tax people is that you want to take 40 to 50 percent of your income. If you're an owner, uh, 40 to 50 percent of salary and the rest is distributions. So it's equally complicated. It's just a question of where the risks lie and what they slap you on the hand for doing. So it was interesting to me to hear them say, like, no, 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 this is a loan to yourself. Like the U.S. will let you, you know, take all the money you want out of there. But the IRS might come after you and say, yeah, you owe us some back Social Security. Right. Well, it's because I think I have this whole like I have the same sort of incorporated entity in Israel as like, I don't know, IBM. Right, like the, I, it's it's not a small small time uh, company. I mean, it's not big. Right. But, so, um, 
Yeah. Now, by the way, at the same time, my accountant told me that um, when I set up this U.S. company, so now I'm sort of learning or relearning all these things that you were mentioning. And he said, among other things, I must take a salary. He said, it can't yeah. be that there's a corporation where there is no salary, like there's no one working there and there's no salary. You got to pay something out. And he said, we will look at the numbers and we'll look at the taxes and we'll figure out sort of what can we expense and what can we not expense and what would be a salary and, and you know, sort of do that accordingly. Um by the way, I'll add that is like a whole other kettle of fish and like issue of what can you expense. So like, you know, we found all sorts of things, all the things we can expense. So like, you know, the newspaper and some other things that I, uh, you know, so I get, uh, you know, The Economist, I get The New Yorker, um, uh, Internet, cell phones. But wait a second, like, where's the boundary between what you can write off personally and what you can write off professionally? Um, every country, every I'm going to guess in the U.S., every state has its own rules, and the R.S. has all sorts of crazy rules. You should find out what you can expense and by how much. Um, but the more you can, the better, obviously. So, for example, our car is owned by the business. And so when we get gas for the car, the business pays for it. When we get service on the car, business pays for it. However, I think the first, like, I, don't know, I want to guess, like 11,000 or to 20,000 kilometers per year are... Like, because it's our car, our, we have to deal with. Again, my accountant takes care of all this and figures this all out and tells us what we owe, and we just nod our heads and say, okay, that's fine. But this is a very, oh, I know, you know what else? Meals and food. Apparently, like, in the U.S., if you go take a client out, it's expensive, not in Israel, unless they're from hmm. abroad. Um, and if they're from abroad, then it's okay. So anyone from the show who wants to come visit me, I'm happy to take you out. Uh, <laughs> In the U.S., they've recently reduced that to you get like a 50% tax deduction for meals. Um, but it's worth mentioning, I think, on that subject, that, you know, we've talked a lot about like, here are these things that are complex that you're going to have to worry about. Um, the tax advantages are kind of the flip side. Like, while it's still complex, this is a definite advantage to having your own business and going um, freelance you can write off a whole lot more things on your taxes than you ever could before. So there are undeniably tax advantages to being a small business owner, which is what you will become as a freelancer. So, um, you know, with Reuven talking about, um, say, the car, like there are things, you know, if, if you have your own freelancing practice and that's what you do for a living in the U.S., buy a new computer you know, that's deducted from your income. You can deduct all sorts of office supplies, all sorts of things that you buy as long as you're predominantly using them for work um, and, and they drive your business. And you can even in the U.S. Uh, deduct uh, room in your house. You say, this is my home office. I use it primarily for business. And so you can deduct um, any mortgage or rent expenses uh, from your income taxes. So you get a lot of tax breaks to sort of offset some of these uh, additional costs and whatnot. Yeah, we do that too in Israel. I remember doing it in the U.S. as well. Like, and so part of our like, so we've said what proportion of our house is used for work, and but my wife and I work at home, so like that's a fairly big proportion. And then part of our water bill, gas bill, electric bill, uh, and even re, um, um, like property tax, all yeah, that is expensive. Um, and so you're going to be collecting lots and lots and lots of receipts. Like, <laughs> I remember growing up. My parents would sometimes ask for receipts when they would buy things. Uh, like my dad was a rabbi and we lived in like the rabbi's house belonging to the synagogue. And so some of those things were expenses and he always was turning in receipts. I was like, what are these receipts? Like, what are these things he's always asking for? And boy, oh boy, do my kids know, always get receipts. Like my 16-year-old my had to go get like a, uh, like a power pack battery for a cell phone. 
Um, and I said, don't forget your receipt. She was like, I know, I know, always get receipts, fine. <laughs> but, but it becomes just second nature because so many of those things are business expenses. Um, and it does, uh, as Eric said, like that's the advantage. You can then, any money you're using to advance your business just about, um, assuming it's like, okay, by law, uh, is, is something that you, know, you, you can and should take care of. Um, oh. Anything else? Boy, we've gone through a lot. Any other thoughts? I can't think think of anything I, offhand. I feel like that's covered it pretty well. Like the different concerns around you know personal and business finances, like how it impacts you personally. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have any other thoughts off the top. All right. Well, maybe we'll go into. Well, let me say first. Like I, I always say at the end of the show. Like if you have suggestions. Um, let us know, and I will still say that at the end of the show. But if there are questions we did not answer about this, or if you have tips, please be in touch with us. We would love to hear from listeners what what you folks are thinking, what you're worried about, and what you're not worried about on finances and, and of course, everything else. All right, with that out of the way, Eric, what you got in terms of uh, in terms of picks? Well, I think um, for one, I'm going to throw something out there that relates to what you were just talking about, like the collection of receipts. If you go off on your own and you find yourself doing it, it's pretty inexpensive and or free. And there is the service out there called Expensify, where instead of keeping a big folder full of receipts, when you get the receipt, you can just take a picture and the app has like a mechanical Turk type of thing that will go and figure out who the vendor is, what kind of vendor it is, what the receipt amount was and store it all for you. Uh, I've used that for years, uh, usually for business travel in various capacities, and it is a pretty handy app. So that's Expensify. Um, and then the other thing I'll, I'll throw out there is I've been recording some YouTube videos of late. And um, uh, one of the things that's been fun is to put like little tiny movie clips in there under like the Fair Use Act. And there is the service streamable.com where you point it at a YouTube video and then you pick like two points in the video and it creates this like tiny few second long video that you can download. So if you're ever looking for like, you know, to create memes or like miniature clips, this service uh, streamable.com is pretty good and it's free. Um, so that's what I got this week. Oh, that's very, that's very cute. I like that. Um, okay. So I've got two picks. Um, one is a fun one. So I think I've picked in the past, uh, on, uh, they're on Amazon video, this show called the tick. Um, and the tick is this (laughs) superhero who takes himself way too seriously. So season one was great. Season two, also great. Season three, sadly, does not look like it's going to happen. It was canceled. And um, so enjoy season two while you can uh, of The Tick. It's just like, it's it's lighthearted, fun, uh, but definitely, definitely a lot of fun. Uh, the second pick is uh, mine. I don't think I've mentioned this yet. So in uh, like Python is the leading language in the world of data science and machine learning. And that's not because it's a really fast to execute language, because it's not. It's thanks to this library called NumPy. And NumPy um, basically is C arrays, just with this really, really light veneer of Python on top of it. And so I've had a NumPy course out for a while, I guess like two months or so. Um, so people are people who want to get that, definitely you're welcome to do that. But a lot of people find NumPy to be sort of a little too low level. It's sort of like a stick shift as opposed to an automatic transmission. And so the automatic transmission sort of uh, wrapper around NumPy is something called Pandas. And Pandas really, it's like having Excel inside of Python. It is extraordinary. 
So I'm still, as we record this, not done with my Pandas course. It is only right now seven hours of video. <laughs> and I'm pro it's probably going to get to like 11 or 12 hours, but it's gonna teach you everything you need to know about Pandas to get into data science with Python. It assumes some basic Python knowledge, but not a ton. And if you ever want to do join the world of data science, if you want to learn how to do some analysis, and if you want then sort of a reference guide, because the way the videos are broken up, you can go back and look at different topics and refresh your memory. Um, I think this course is going to be fun and interesting. Um, so I'll have a link to it, my, my Pandas course uh, in the show notes. And um, I'm having fun recording it. And it's basically an improved version of what I do on site at different companies around the world. So um, it's, it's fun to, to do it from the comfort of my own home. All right. Well, Eric, thank you as usual. Thank you to all of our listeners. And um, if you, once again, have any suggestions, topics, thoughts, questions, what's bothering you? What is bothering you, listeners, as freelancers? What can we help? What burdens can we relieve you of? Um, and what guests would you like to hear from? Let us know, contact us, and we will delight to take care of that. And meanwhile, we will see you next week on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.